What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dr. Devin Walker, and I'm here with Javier Wallace, and we are Black with Blue Passports. This podcast explores the impact that international travel has on Black Americans' pursuit of liberty and racial justice. This podcast is sponsored by DDCE Global at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from the World Walker Foundation and Black Austin Tours. All right, and welcome back to another episode of Black with Blue Passports. It's me and your boy Javier Wallace here. And today we have a, a, an amazing guest with us. I'm super excited to have her. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Fatumata Diallo. Giallo or Diallo? Giallo is good. All right. So Fatumata is a recent grad from the University of Texas at Austin. She pursued two degrees while here, one in health and society and the other in international relations, global studies with a minor in French. Her interests include women and children's human rights, social justice, and serving and advocating for underserved communities. She plans on attending law school to pursue her JD in human rights, international law. She's very passionate about bringing sustainable, healthy, and sanitary products to women and young girls in Guinea and beyond. She has an she has interned for a plethora of nonprofits, law firms, and entrepreneurship organizations. She is currently the co-founder of a student-led organization and research team, the Women's Relief Initiative, which works towards providing immediate period relief to women dealing with the lack of access to menstrual products and gaining while creating a sustainable biodegradable pad. Her life motto is to strive each day towards working to make the world a little bit better than she found it. Wow, this is, that's an amazing bio. Um, you just graduated, but you're doing so much already. So, so thank you for being here and um, welcome. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited for this talk today. Cool, as are we. Well, good. I'm, I, I want to go ahead and jump it out. First of all, I want to say congratulations on the completion of two degrees at the University of Texas. I think that it is an amazing accomplishment and inclusive of all the things that I've heard you done. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the majority of the work I understand is happening in Guinea. And uh, well, maybe, well, my question is, go ahead, if you could tell us a little bit more about the work to Guinea. But the reason why I'm asking about the question again, because I know you have a connection with Guinea, um, the country in the continent of Africa. And what does home mean? Like, what does home mean to you? And I'm asking because, you know, like in the title of, of this podcast, Black with Blue Passports, we really were thinking about this idea. And, and it came to me because I'm a dual citizen. My father's from the Republic of Panama and I have two passports. One is uh, light, lighter blue than the, than the other. The American passport is darker of the two. Um, and I have some very unique experiences when traveling as a citizen of either country. Um, very crazy experiences. So like within your work, I'm always amazed sometimes or just want to know like what does home mean to people when they do this international work? So maybe if we could jump off there, I would love to hear it. Yeah, so um, I was born in Guinea and I came to the U.S. when I was six. Um, so I came in Guinea. I was living with my grandparents in a smaller town. Um, and in the summers, I would go to the capital um, with my mom's side of the family. Um, so then I came to be with my parents um, in 2005 and we lived in Memphis, Tennessee. And then we were there for about nine years. Um, and then from there, we moved to Houston. And I was in Houston for just about two years. Um, and then I went to Austin for school. 
four years. I was there for four years and now I'm in Virginia. So I think my journey of really like finding what home means to me is something I'm still trying to figure out. Um, recently, though, I got into listening to Solange um, and one of her most recent album um, two years ago, When I Get Home. I think that album did a lot for me in just realizing that home is something I can create. Um, I have so many different experiences living in so many different places and each of those places have contributed individually to my outlook on life um, and to my values and morals. Each place that I've lived at has contributed to that and to getting me to this mindset that I have. Um, so when I think about home, I think of just all those individual places put together in one and that's like in me. Um, so I see home as just in, in me, in myself, um, something that I create within myself, but something that came to be created because of the different places that I've lived in, the different people that I've interacted with um, and the different experiences that I've had. That has shaped my definition of what home means for me. Yeah. Wow, I love it. I love it, I mean, I love it. <laughs> Should have at the beginning of the Salam CD, giving a framework for what home might be. Yes. Uh, so tell me, when you when you mentioned a little bit about growing up in the village compared to growing to the major city, mm-hmm. you know, it, it made me think about this prominent trope and stigma within the United States that we have around. You know, I, even saying this sounds ridiculous, but Africa, right? It's a mm-hmm. huge continent, but we oftentimes we we have this narrative that people come from these little villages and, and huts. So what was your experience like growing up in an actual village? Because most Africans I meet did not grow up in a village yeah. in any way, shape or form. <laughs> yeah. um, but what was that experience like? And then going to the major city, what were some of the big differences for you and, and how did you navigate that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I technically did not live in a village. Um, I lived in a town. It's considered to be a town. Um, and I was born in the capital. So I would go to the capital um, during the summers, but I was living and going to school in the town, in the smaller town. Um, and the difference between the two was that like, and I didn't know the whole thing of um, what we see on TV is how, is how Africa is. I didn't know any of that until I got to America. I didn't know Africa was poor until I got to America. Mm. I didn't know African kids were seen as needy. Um, until I got to America, because when I was in Guinea, everything was given to me, everything, I, I never felt as if I was lacking anything. Um, I do understand that there are some people who aren't as privileged, though, in, in most, in other parts of Africa, but it's just the things that we see sometimes, um, the portrayal of it is not accurate. I grew up surrounded by, like, family, friends, um, and for us, at least, um, we, we were privileged. Something that I noticed from a very young age, though, that contributed to just my mindset today is the schooling system there. Something that I've come to realize is that a pub, a private school, I was going to private school when I was in Guinea, um, and my parents were paying for me to get that private school education. And a private school education in Guinea is equivalent to a public school education in the United States. So now imagine what a public school in Guinea is like if, if a private school is equivalent to the public to the public school. And so I was privileged enough to go to a private school. Um, and I noticed that some of my friends were not. Um, and I, I didn't see it as anything until I came to America and I started thinking about those things just systematically and understanding like how 
just because these people didn't have the money um, and also because of the schooling system and a lot of different systems, governmental system, politics that goes into it, um, the school system wasn't good. So um, that's something that has greatly just impacted the way I think um, and the way I do my projects now. But going back to your question of, of how I've, how my experience was um, in the smaller town versus the larger city, um, in the smaller towns, it was open. It was a lot. I was surrounded by a lot of nature. I even owned a pet goat, um, which they killed when I came to America. But it was nice while I had it. Um, I had a pet goat. Um, we were. What's your goat's name? I forgot. Okay. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. But I was responsible for that goat. We had. Uh, we had livestock. We had other livestock. Um, we grew plants, um, vegetables, fruits. Um, we had like avocado trees. It was like perfect. Um, I loved it. Um, just surrounded by so much nature, and it was so different because in the in the capital, in the city, it was very robust. Um, people were always moving. People, there was barely any green greenery around. Um, but there was there was a lot more opportunity um, in the capital than there are in the inner cities. Um, hence, a lot of times when um, kids grow older, they move outwards into the bigger cities um, looking for jobs and school opportunities. Okay, so. I want to jump into the Women's Relief Initiative and how did you decide that you wanted to do this? And I know it connects to what you talked about earlier, like the schooling system out there as well, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the backstory for the Women's Relief Initiative? Yes, it was me and four other of my friends, um, three Guineans and one Senegalese student at the University of Texas. Um, we were all just sitting at our West Campus apartment one day um, having dinner. We would have dinner every Sunday. Um, so we were just having dinner. Um, and then I went, I went to Houston for Thanksgiving break. Um, and my mom, I told her that, hey, like me and my friends, we have dinner every Sunday. We just come together and we just share a meal. She said, that's all you guys do. Like you all just come and y'all eat. And I said, yes, that's all we do. Um, and she encouraged us to look into starting some kind of project for the community that brought us together. Um, so I went back and I told my friends and immediately they were on board as well. So we immediately started just looking out, um, just looking out into the Guinean community within Austin um, and seeing what it is that we can do. Um, and they were very helpful in, in terms of like showing us different areas that we could do a project in, but we realized that they were showing us a lot of projects that have already been done. Um, some of which were helping the homeless population in Guinea, helping orphans, helping, um, to sponsor kids in school. And then there was this one idea brought up about period poverty. And that's a term that we had never really even if we'd heard it, we never really took time to like ponder upon it. Um, so we immediately thought of just the privilege that we have like being women, being Guinean women, Guinean and Senegalese women in America and just having access to period products whenever we need it. And I didn't realize just how big like that was because a lot of times um, we think, oh, it's just a pad. But um, after like, researching and learning so much about this topic, I realized that for a lot of women in a lot of these communities, that 
just a pad, quote unquote, just a pad, like determines the just the outlook of their whole life. There's this analogy we use um, of how just a single pad can determine if a girl um, continues her education um, and thus can determine if whether or not she will get married off at an early age which can then determine whether or not she's prone to having children earlier, then that cycle continues. So it's like we didn't think of all the effects of what one single pad can do, and not even just on that, um, on that side, but also health-wise. Um, so many women, especially in these communities, sometimes they're shunned for not having children, and sometimes they don't understand the reproductive health issues of like the reasons why they can't have children um they're just shunned so um, it was a lot of different things that went into deciding to to move forward with period poverty as our project but the main one was that we were just acknowledging the privilege that we have as women as women in america acknowledging that privilege and then working to address that need yeah so i had a couple questions first what can you explain period poverty? Yes. So period poverty is when women, women, when they have their, their cycle um, and they don't have access to period products, whether it be because of distance, whether it be because of costs, um, any factor, whether it be because of taboo, just the lack of access to menstrual products or menstrual educational resources. Yes. Okay, thank you. And, and you talk about you and your three other, I mean, three other uh, Guinea friends and one Senegalese friend creating this project. And you, and you brought up this idea of privilege, right? How you all had privilege and you were thinking about how do you utilize your privilege to do something positive for the community? Do you think that's something we often think about, especially within the Black community here in the States, is our privilege? Like, how did you all come to that idea of like, hey, hey let's use our privilege? Because oftentimes in this country, I think we oftentimes focus on, you know, our oppression. Yes. Yes, I totally agree. And I think I, I too, I think a lot about my oppression. But I think with this one, what really, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but what really helped me in just acknowledging my privilege is just I'd say, honestly, for one, is because I have all those different experiences living in all these different places. I have experience living in Guinea. I have experience living in two different, th now three different states here in the United States. Um, I have like a broad experience. So it's all those different experiences that showed me that like there is oppression in this world, but there are also people that I am also privileged and there are also people that don't have the things that I have. So I cannot solely focus on the things that I do not have um, because the things I do have, I have a lot of them. I have a lot of opportunities. I have a lot of resources and all those things can be used and directed into something that will benefit someone else. Um, so that's how I saw it. And that's how I see my privilege. Um, it's just a means for me to do more, um, a means for me to look at what I have and not what I do not have. Cool. So, so y'all started the group. Where are y'all at now? What, what's, what's been happening? How many years ago did you start the, the group, the organization? Yes. So we started it, um, November of 2018, um, just in a small student apartment in West Campus. We started it. 
Um, and then we initially, it was just the, the five of us. Um, and initially all, we weren't thinking long-term. We just wanted to do a project that would help. Um, that's all, that was our only goal was to just help. Um, we weren't looking for this to be anything long-term, for this to be anything sustainable. We just wanted to help any way that we could. Um, so that's initially we, we did like a GoFundMe and we did online um, fundraising campaigns. Um, and we were able to raise $1,000 and we sent that out to Guinea for our first project, which was able to provide three clinics worth of pads for the women there. Um, and also, um, and there was also an educational factor. So the team that was on the ground, um, they were able to go and educate the women about the uses of a pad, how to use it, what it's used for, um, and how best to care for themselves, what periods are, um, just explaining all those things to them. Um, so we were able to do that in 2019, summer of 2019. Um, and then we realized during that time, we realized that we want to be sustainable. We don't want this to just be one time thing and we're done. We want, we want to fully invest in these women so that we know when we're gone from this place, this is something, these are habits that they will continue. And these are habits that they will teach their daughters. And so we, um, we talked about creating a bigger team and we talked about um, starting our own pad. Um, and that's where the idea of a biodegradable pad came in, because also we realized that a lot of these communities that we work in, um, the pollution is really bad in these countries. So we didn't want to add on to the pollution that was already like really that was already taking place over there. Um, and that's where the idea of a biodegradable pad came in. It's good for the environment. And also our pad would be would be made from materials that are abundant in that country. So our pad, um, I believe, is one of some of the some of the materials used are like banana leaves um corn husks just materials that are abundant in these countries so then we don't have to worry about because eventually the goal is to teach it to these women so they can make it themselves and sell it themselves and they can have their own source of income as well so we want to make sure that 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 that, that accessibility feature is there where the materials are in their countries um, and they won't have a hard time obtaining them. Um, and now we are officially a registered nonprofit. Um, we have over 50 members, students um, and nonprofit members. Um, and we are looking to expand this year to a second country. We will still be working with Guinea, uh, but we are looking to add on a second country as well. Um, and in the past year, we've done numerous like social media campaigns with our international partners in Kenya and Uganda and in India. Um, so we've just been trying to work with other organizations that are doing the same work just so our impact is more, is wider. Yeah. I gotta like, I'm just, there's so many things going on in my mind right now. I think one, I, I don't even know which one to go at first, if I'm being honest, you know, like I'm, I'm very much impacted by just one pad, right? And how one pad can influence or determine the trajectory of somebody's life. Like one pad equals one young woman not being able to go to school that day. It, it equates that young woman, that one pad having to, you know, desert school 
being married into an earlier pregnancy, earlier relationship, bearing children at an earlier age and cuts off different things. You know, like this, so this idea of just one, right? And I think it's just so, it's so telling about just, you know, what you are doing as an individual, as part of collective, like the power of one, you know, because the power of one can be so, in, in what I'm hearing, you know, consequential and negative ways in somebody's life, but how like even just the one comment, the one dinner that your mother, mm -hmm. conversation mother had with you that went back and y'all went and did this. So I think we can never like underestimate the power of one, um, either in the positive way or the negative ways, because we all can make a difference. And one thing, just like a pad, in the life of these young women can make a, a huge difference, right? So I, I congratulate you on using your power of one, but you you kind of, for me, I think you glossed over it because I'm trying to figure out how do you just make a pad out of out of banana leaves? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like how do we get to that point? Like, you be like, yeah, we're making pads out of, you know, material that we, like, how, who, who, how? I mean, did yeah. you? Like, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it seemed, no, I, I mean, I, when I'm listening to you too, it's amazing. It's like, all right, I get the period, you know, the, the drive, like we're going we gonna to raise some money. We're going to get the tampons out. Right. But now you went from that within two years to creating fully biodegradable pads. This is the sixth prototype. Am I correct? That you yes, all are on the six, yeah. like y'all ramped up. Yeah. yeah. Like, who, who like, yeah. The, how do you like the do you idea, the idea of the biodegradable pad, it actually came up um, with the, the one guy that is our co-founder, Mamadou Balde. Mamadou, um, shout out to Mamadou. <laughs> you know we love Mamadou yes. on here. <laughs> we, um, him and I were talking about just how can we be more sustainable? And then he came up with the idea of at that point, it was just us five. Um, it was just me, him, and our other Guinean and Senegalese friends. Um, so we were just talking about how can we be more sustainable? Um, and also, not even just sustainability, but wh what do we want like in a pad? Because we want accessibility, but like we don't just want, we don't just want money accessibility. We also want materials accessibility. Um, we want to make sure that this is something abundant. Um, and so then he was like, okay, you know, we're at this university. We have these resources. Like this is the best time to take advantage of the resources that we have. Again, the privilege that we have being here. So immediately he, he, was, he was in the School of Engineering. Um, so he had access to labs, to professors, um, and to other students also. So he was in a lab class, in a senior lab class, I believe. Um, and he just recruited some of his classmates in there and they, ma they made that project their senior project and it got approved. Um, and that's just how it started. It started off as a senior project, um, but because we were still UT students um, and some of our members are still UT students, we have the advantage of having mentors, um, professor mentors, and also having access to labs and having access to um, grants, um, research grants. Um, we applied for one um, last year and we won it. Um, and we got a thousand dollar grant, which helped us buy materials that we need to create these pads. Um, so that's just how it started. It started with us just having a conversation about how can we be more sustainable? How can we provide greater expansion of access 
Um, and then that just went into Mamadou going out and finding a team, recruiting a team. Um, and that's, that's how it happened. So it's, yeah. it's, it's true what they say. <laughs> what they say what starts here changes the world it, it does Brandy. it does it is true it is it, is true. it sounds true to me i don't know if i want to give ut all that credit i, I want to like keep it with y'all I, well, I i get it i get it i get it the resources, the, resources like, yes. the meeting places west campus apartment dinners on sunday it started at ut okay yes. I I mean, and it sounds like you keep coming back to this idea of resources and privilege and how you were really able to utilize the opportunities that are made available to you for being a college student. Yeah. Um, and you also referenced when I said, you know, I feel like a lot of times we don't necessarily think about the resources and the opportunities. Sometimes, sometimes it almost feels like oppression can be blinding, right? In the sense that it it blinds you from the actual opportunities that may be available to you yes. because you're so focused on the oppression. What would you have to say to, I'm a kind of bigger picture question, like why? how do you feel like your story and, and the Women's Relief Initiative relates to like bigger issues around black Americans seeing themselves as global citizens? Like why is it important for us here in this country to really reorient ourselves towards a, a more global identity? Mm -hmm. I think what well, I'm learning as just I'm figuring out my identity um, as a 20 something year old um, out of college. Um, I'm learning that our history, our, where we stand as black people, it's, it's, it's so strategic because it's like, we have so many different perspectives. We have so many different ways and areas of looking at things. Um, so it's like, we're we have that to our, to our advantage we know how to look at things in different ways um and i think what would really help us is if we learn to just take those things that we know how to look at in different perspectives take it and um use it to our advantage um i don't know if i'm making sense but it's it's like using our different perspectives to our advantage in terms of bettering our situations on based on what we can better um based on the things that we can change using the things that okay let me think about it because i'm not making sense right now um i thought you were making perfect sense but it's just all over the place okay i think um like using, using the different perspective, like the different talents, the different talents and perspectives that we have to better ourselves on the situations that we can better ourselves. Um, so if that means, um, if that means in our, in our communities, um, in our communities, um, we see something going wrong or we see something going, not going the way it should be going, um, using the different perspectives that we have or the different talents that we bring to make some kind of change in that community. Um, yeah, because I can say like, for example, that's what we did. Um, the different perspectives that we brought, we have a Senegalese girl, we have, um, we have three other Guineans. Me, I was born in Guinea. The other two Guineans, they weren't. They, one of them have been to Guinea one time. 
Um, one of them has never been to Guinea. Um, but she, know, she knows Guinea based on her household growing up in America. Whereas I knew Guinea based on the fact that I was born there. Mamadou knew Guinea based on the fact that he was born there and he stayed there a while longer. Whereas I have experience coming from Memphis, um, coming from um, Houston, and then we also have a Senegalese girl. So all of us brought in our different talents, our different perspectives on just how we saw things, how we grew within the people that we were around. And we all just put it all into the, the work, um, put it all into the project, and it created something really beautiful. So I think as Black people, if we can come together and just bring in our different perspectives, like honor our different perspectives um, and our different talents and use those to the betterment of the issues that we can fix, I think that would have a big impact. Yeah, I, and I get you, you know, I mean, Black people are a global people, right? And yes. sometimes I think it could get, we can fall into this belief system that it's like, oh, it's Black people here in America, you know, we got to get it, we got to figure it out for ourselves, we're facing all this oppression. And even that term Black, right, like who has access to it internationally, um, as if Latin Americans aren't also Black, right? And so when you talk about like the, the ability to tap into all of our diverse perspectives from Latin America, Central America, South America, North America, the continent of Africa, the Middle East, man, when I was in Dubai, I saw tons of African folks out there. You know, we're, we really are global people and it's, I, I feel like through our diversity, right? And our diver diverse experiences in this world and approaches to life, if we can really come together and, and formulate new ways of being. And in many ways, I think that's what your organization has done. And what I like about your organization is you all are connecting, you know, not only your product, but right, really you've connected the institution of UT to Guinea, right? Yes. Creating this formal relationship. Um, but furthermore, what I really liked is you talked so much about how do you make this uh, user-friendly for the people in the communities you're trying to serve, right? Not mm -hmm. how do we make it easier for us over here or how yes. do we give them the most pads possible if that's going to negatively impact uh, pollution, Right. It's like, how do we make this work for the people in the communities that we're trying to serve? How do they want it to work? And it seems like that's really at the forefront of you all mission, which I think oftentimes as Americans, sometimes we go wrong when we're trying to, you know, support other countries or, or organizations in other countries. We come in with this mindset, yo, let's figure this out. Let's fix this. Um, but you're like, nah, let me let's work together. Let's learn together. And design a solution that's sustainable and impactful for the local communities that you're trying to serve. So I have a lot of respect for what you're doing and um, ultimately, yeah, and, and what that means about bringing people's diverse experiences and worldviews together to make a change. Yes. Yeah, I think um, from the very beginning, we, we made it clear to each other that we, we don't have enough experience in Guinea to be able to speak for the people of Guinea or to be able to know what the people of Guinea want, what the women of Guinea want. Um, we just, we didn't know much about it. Um, so we always made it a priority that even if, even if we were at a place where there was no one we could ask, um, we would just make up surveys. We would create surveys and we would send them out to our families in Guinea and have them send it out to the women. Um, because we didn't want to come in with just, oh, 
you know, with the savior complex of, oh, like we're here and we want to help, but we want to help on our terms because that's, that's, that's not what WRI stood for and it's not what it stands for. Um, and I just want to touch on what you said a little bit earlier. Um, I think it's so important for us as Black people to really honor and understand each other's diversity. Um, I think like I've seen it, I've seen it beautifully like done in the past few years. I feel like when I first came to the United States um, in Memphis, I was bullied a lot. Um, I was bullied a lot for being, for being African. And I went to a predominantly black school, um, but I was bullied by black kids for being African, um, for my darker complexion, for my accent, for my kinky hair. I was bullied a lot for that. Um, and as I grew older, um, and I think the idea of what it means to be African has, it has like, I don't know if it's social media or what, but it has really taken off. Um, now it's like, it's beautiful. Like, it's like everyone wants to tap in to, to their inner African, I, I don't know. But it's like, everyone is so like, excited about learning more about African, Af the different cultures in Africa. Everyone wants to go back, um, go back home. Um, everyone wants to just learn the dances, have their hair out. You know, everyone's trying to just tap into that. And it's really beautiful to see um, in just like a span of a few years, like how drastically like it has changed, but it has changed for the better. And I think it should continue changing this way because it's only if we, if we honor and, um, and accept each other's talents that we can work together to do some kind of small, take some kind of small action in bettering our individual communities. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. I, um, I wonder though, right? I wonder, because I, I, I agree, I think social media, Twitter, Instagram, the ability for individuals to choose and select the images and the representations of the various parts of the world that they want to highlight, right? We can do that individually now instead of that coming from, you know, really these white media outlets, mm -hmm. right? So now people have the opportunity to do that for themselves and they can really showcase and highlight what they want. And, and that's beautiful. But I'm also wondering for you, you know, when you're trying to highlight and bring awareness to an issue within Guinea, right? An issue that also falls in line with this larger dominant narrative that we have about Africa and Africans, um, right? Being poverty oriented, you know, this idea of not knowing something. How do you how do you, when you're looking for donations, when you're looking for partners, when you're, you know, ultimately you're trying to identify resources, how do you do that in a way that doesn't fall into this deficit-oriented discourse about people in Guinea, about gender relations in Guinea? You know, how do you how do you have that conversation? And is that a difficult conversation to have? Um, so we the conversations we have surrounding that isn't usually tied to Guinea per se, it's only very limited tied to Guinea um, because period poverty isn't just a problem specific to Guinea. So we, we always speak about this issue as um, a thing that, uh, an issue that faces women everywhere, um, that faces especially underrepresented communities 
um, but women everywhere, homeless women, um, incarcerated women, women everywhere. Um, so that's how usually we tell the story, but um, in terms of how Guinea fits into this, that's the area that we are, that most, that the founders are from. Um, and that's the area that we have chosen as the first place that we will work towards eradicating this. But the problem, the issue itself is an issue for women everywhere and for communities everywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So you, so the, the term I'm thinking in my mind is like poverty porn. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that? Like people are really interested in, Javier, you know what I'm talking about? Like you know, in a story? You, you have to deal with that in, in, you know what I'm saying, when you're tapping people through Latin American, Black Latin American communities? Of course. I mean, I think, you know, um, whenever we're thinking about places like what I sometimes, and I don't really call it like the global South anymore or what people will sometimes say like developing nations or the developing world or underdeveloped nations and i think you know given the time that we're in right now here in the united states like in texas particularly like with this winter storm you know it's so hard for me to call you know people are like we're living like people in developing nations we're getting water and i'm like you know this is a time in your life for a week but this is an experience that people have yes daily and then also i've lived in a in a country that people consider to be developing and they and in that developing space there are people who live lives way better than yes. people who live here in the united states way better yes. way better extremely better and i work for those people so i know it is and at the same time in the united states like a super developed country there are people who live like individuals in the developing world daily daily 365 days a year um but i and, and you know and that's what kind of made me upset like within this winter storm and i know that might not be the topic is people making these comments about how they were living for a week and there's people in the country there's people that they pass every day on their way to work you know that are homeless on the corner who haven't had water or lights for how many years and we can't even get to have them in a conversation where all of a sudden we can talk about our situation being like a developing nation. So I think, you know, even the work I do in Latin America, and I'm not saying it's like the work that Fatamata is doing, but I do think we have to battle with these large stereotypes and tropes directed at the region, at, at these countries, just because we have been force fed these images and ideas. I think kind of what you were saying, Fatamata, but like, you didn't know that you were a needy person of a needy region until you came to the United States, yeah. you know? You know, so I think we do, and I'm not speaking for you, I'm in my, in Panama, like I, you know, and it's, for me, it's always a thin line. It's like, how can I create the sense of urgency, let you know that this is an urgent issue without falling into the tropes yes. and the stereotypes? Do you need to, do I access them sometimes to get the money? Maybe. Maybe I'm being honest. Maybe, you know, because sometimes that's the only way some people open their wallets, if our purses. If I'm being completely honest in my experiences, but I think it, it it's a lot of care that you have to take. There's so many stereotypes that go in with other places in the world, and and that was one of my questions. Um, 
that I had is like, you know, cause I know I do. And I just explained that how I do is like, how do you, you know, like how will you continue to have the care for these people that you are related to might not have the same experiences as when trying to provide these services and eradicate this issue that mm-hmm. happens, you know? And I think for me, that is something that I always find myself struggling with. Mm-hmm. And I know y'all are going to approach that if you haven't already, as you continue to seek monies to work in these communities mm-hmm. and do the work, because sometimes people don't open up their the resources unless they feel like it's a dire, like people are mm-hmm. like, you know, <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> that is so true and that is it's so sad that that's that's how it is um in wri we decided early on also that we did not want to publish any faces of the women that were being benefited um so we were only every time we would post um we started off like in the beginning because we weren't really educated on the topic um we posted some of our summer photos from our first project but um, when we realized that this is not something we stand for, this is not something we want to stand for, um, we made sure not to. And we would only show photos of the resources and of the volunteers handing the resources and the volunteers speaking to the people. And if we did post group photos of the women that were benefiting, we would blur out their faces just because of integrity um, and because, because we didn't want, we knew that if it was us in that situation, we, we probably wouldn't. And these are women in, in the villages. These are women who do not have access to the internet. So it would, it would have been very unfair of us to, and also these, most of them are little girls that are in school. So it would have been, obviously they would have never known because they don't have access to internet. Um, but it's just, they they weren't educated about what it is we were doing, like with their images. Um, so it's like it wouldn't have been fair on our part. Um, and that's just, that's how we, even to today, um, that's how we do it. Um, we present, we do present um, people with testimonies. So with, if, with the women's per- permissions, they can tell us their story and we can use that on our social medias um, campaigns or anything that we want to use it for. Um, but we use, we use testimonies, um, and we just present people with the facts because I think with the facts, like, especially in this situation, um, it speaks really loud. Um, especially when you connect it in realistic terms, like that analogy that we use of how that cycle could continue. And we just, we try to show people the impact and where their money is going to, rather than, rather than kind of kind of showing them these women in need in dire need but yeah and I think you also asked Javier about maintaining care how do we maintain the care mm-hmm. um for me personally I is I think one thing that helps me maintain that is just like understanding my privilege again um understanding that I too am a woman um I too bleed every month um, and I have privilege being here and knowing all the resources um, that I need to know about how to care for myself um, or even if I don't know, I have access to it. Um, Just constantly reminding myself of that and reminding myself that there are women who don't. Um, That's enough for me. Um, Yeah. 
So th thank you for that. And and last question here, we're running a little low on time. Um, well, it's, a, it's a two part question and a little bit of a comment. The comment is, I think this work and really that last testament you just gave that out right now is so important, not just internationally, right? As you said, right here, right? I have a daughter in middle school. And so I'm learning about what is the experience of a young woman who is learning how to embrace her changing body, right? Like, what is that experience like? So I'm thinking, you know, you all could also, you know, time permitting, right? There's so much work that can be done here, right? At a local middle school, going out and having a conversation with the girls and the boys around, like, this is what this is. Because we don't learn that stuff in school. We don't talk about a woman's period. We don't, it's, it's, equally as taboo here sometimes and in certain mm -hmm. places, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I really applaud the work that you're doing. And the question is, what is WRI gonna look like in five years from now? And for folks who want to help you fulfill that mission, how can they follow you? How can they find you? How can they get involved? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm gonna speak a little bit on what you said about um, teaching boys and girls in middle schools. Um, so we are also creating a curriculum, um, which we hope to eventually translate to the countries that we're working in. Um, but the goal of that curriculum would be to teach boys and girls, um, high schoolers, middle to high schoolers, about what all things period. Um, and the goal is hopefully to integrate that into school systems. Um, so that's just side note. Um, but to answer your question, um, in five years, Women's Relief Initiative, I'm hoping that we have a strong base um, in Guinea. And I'm hoping that by that time, we, the only thing that we as an organization would be focusing on in Guinea is um, mentoring the team that we have on the ground that will now ensure that they check in every month or so on the women in the different villages to ensure that women, women are knowledgeable about their periods um, and women are taking care of themselves. Um, so my goal is, my hope is that in five years, WRI has done that for Guinea and we've expanded to at least three other countries. Um, and we have, a, we have a fully developed biodegradable pad implemented in all those countries that we are in. Um, yeah, that's my goal. Uh, that's my hope for WRI in five years. And for anyone wanting to follow our work, um, to support us, um, you can follow us on all of our social medias at Women's Relief Initiative. Um, on Facebook, on Instagram at Women's Relief Initiative, and our website, women's, womensrelief.net, um, and Twitter at Women's Relief Initiative. Um, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And, and thank you guys so much for having me. This was, this was a really good, great conversation. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the work. Thank you for your mother pushing you yeah. to do more than just eat. Oh, shout out to moms. What's mom's name? Did. Her name is Sophie. Sophie. Shout out to Sophie. I just love how unimpressed you was about your son. <laughs> <She> was not. <laughs> Go go do something, right? <laughs> I just, that's it. Look, that one little nudge, right? <laughs>
in five years is going to be international organization yes. delivering, uh, you know, fully biodegradable pads in multiple parts of the world. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, so thank you all. And, um, you know, thanks for making, making another episode of Black with Blue Passports. We are excited to have you. And um, thanks once again. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Peace. Thank y'all for checking out another episode of Black with Blue Passwords with Javier Wallace and Dr. Devin Walker. Make sure y'all follow us and check us out on social media at DDCE Global, World Walker Foundation, Black Austin Tours, Afro-Latino Travel, and keep this conversation going. A special shout-out goes out to our production team, Sophia Leal and Sydney Cox. Hey, be safe, y'all, and we'll see y'all next time.